0: First Peter chapter five, beginning in verses one through four. "The elders who are among you, I exhort, I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly." not for dishonest gain but eagerly nor as being lords over those entrusted to you but be being examples to the flock and when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away in this final chapter of 1 Peter he gives a series of exhortations to leaders and to saints. He draws on his own personal experiences, his gifts, his call to ministry. Peter calls on the elders to serve as role models in verse 1. And then he gives a brief list of responsibilities in verses 2 and 3, including feeding, leading the flock of God. And then he makes mention of a future reward in verse 4. Often in my study early in the morning, I will begin my morning devotion with a regular reading from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's morning and evening devotion. It provides a nugget of inspiration and, and hope for me each and every morning. His book, Lectures to My Students, continues to have a profound effect on my life. Spurgeon was called to preach at an early age and he became the pastor of New Park Church Chapel in London at the age of 20. That was in 1854. Soon after, the church's attendance swelled to an overflowing capacity and it required the building of what came to be called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Spurgeon preached there until he retired in June of 1891. He died the following January. The congregation regularly held about 6,000 people. Once a month, he asked the 6,000 people who came to his church not to come so other people could come. And by the way, (laughs) it never failed to fill up. One biographer wrote, quote, "...preeminently he was a preacher. His clear voice, his mastery of Anglo-Saxon, and his keen sense of humor allied to a sure grasp of the Scripture and a deep love for Christ produced some of the noblest preaching of any age." Unquote. I love that because he had a little old lady come up to him after service one day and he said, "...sir..." You seem to exercise a great deal of levity in the pulpit, always telling jokes. And he said, Madam, if you only knew how I restrained myself. (laughs) In his book, Lectures to My Students, he writes, Every workman knows the necessity of keeping his tools in a good state of repair. If the workman loses edge, he knows that there will be a greater drought upon his energies. In other words, it's his way of saying, if the knife isn't sharp, you have to cut over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, he writes or his work will be done badly. It will be in vain for me to stock my library or organize societies or project schemes if I neglect the culture of myself for books and agencies and systems are only remotely the instruments of my holy calling. My own spirit, soul, body, These are the nearest machinery for sacred service. My spiritual faculties, my inner life, those are my battle axe. Those are the weapons of my warfare. By the way, he preached for 38 years. More than 1,800 years separated the two great preachers, Peter and Charles, but both understood that there's a right way and a wrong way For preachers, for ministers, for leaders to conduct themselves. Pastors often begin ministry in the hopes of attracting hundreds and even thousands to listen to their life-giving messages. Only to find ministry is difficult. It's hard work. A pastor has to have the qualities of patience and a willingness to exercise grace and extend understanding and then personally know Jesus and then extend the love of Jesus. John Owen, the great Puritan preacher said, no man preaches his sermon well to others if he doth not first preach it to himself. In this passage of scripture, Peter has relived this passage over and over again in his mind, in his heart. He isn't just simply preaching it to the leaders, but he himself has experienced the things that he's about to talk about. In verse 1, he begins with a description of maturity in ministry. Look again. It says, the elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Once again, Peter returns to the theme of his letter. The theme, of course, being God's grace in suffering. Peter recalls his own witness of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And for what reason? He's doing this to exhort the elders. And by the way, the word translated elder is the word presbuteros. Depending on the context, it can just simply mean a senior citizen, someone who's older. But it can also be a reference to maturation or maturity in leadership. As a matter of fact, the elders are people who are mature. These are the saints who have grown up. These are the saints who have become acquainted with Jesus. These are the the, the saints who have grown up, become acquainted with Jesus, and begin to identify with his suffering and with his glory. You'll remember elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul writes and he says, when I was among you, I purposed not to know anything except for Jesus Christ. And him crucified. They are unlikely to uh, become tossed to and fro on every wind of doctrine. The elders, by the way, are not likely to be manipulated by their feelings. They're not likely to be swayed by the world's false promises. The elders are aware of the great enemies, the world the flesh, and the schemes of the devil. Some scholars suggest that the elders in the early church were modeled on the basis of a Jewish synagogue. If that's the case, then the elders would have provided supervision and instruction. But they would provide more than supervision and instruction. They would provide protection and discipline and direction. You see, pastors and leaders often suffer from an ongoing temptation, and that is, of course, pride. When a person speaks for God, when a person stands in the place of public examination, when a person stands in the spotlight, so to speak, we can sometimes come to the wrong conclusion that we are as important or as significant as the spotlight insists, and we forget the tears. And we forget the heartaches, and we forget about our own sin. We forget about how we've abused our congregations with ill-prepared sermons and cotton candy messages. And we begin to believe the devil's lies that we're great preachers or that we're great men of God worthy of admiration. We begin to embrace the false flatteries that inflate our pride. And Peter doesn't say, Peter, the rock. Peter, the chief apostle. Peter, you guessed it. This is my ring, and I'm extending it for you to kiss. No, that's not the Peter. He's already had his own dramatic encounter with pride. Even if everybody else abandoned you, Jesus, I'll stick by you. These other guys, they might flake out on you, but I will never flake out on you. You remember Jesus' horrible words? Oh, you know what? Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. You said no, right? No, I didn't say no. And when you fail, make sure that you strengthen your brothers and fail he did. And by the way, when he writes, thankfully, a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Jesus... I want you to notice something. Whether Peter is talking about it, whether Paul is talking about it, no matter who is talking in the New Testament about sufferings, the glory of Jesus isn't far behind. You'll notice that when Jesus and his sufferings are mentioned, the Holy Spirit invariably always talks about his glory. You know, many, many people picture the image of Jesus, the baby in the manger. Or they'll picture Jesus dying on the cross. And clearly Jesus was a baby in a manger. And clearly Jesus did die on a cross. But make no mistake about it. Jesus is in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He has embraced glory for all eternity. The Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose from the dead is now at this very moment in heaven. He fully occupies a throne that he was always intended to occupy. When Peter talks about being a witness, he clearly was. He saw the great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, even if it was from a sleepy, dreamlike fog. He witnessed from a distance Jesus being dragged through the Jewish judicial system. He was deeply aware of what Jesus looked like hanging from a cross, iron nails piercing his limbs, woven hemp strung around his body to keep gravity from ripping his body off of the wooden beams and dropping like so much bloody tissue on the earth below. Clearly, Jesus saw a glorified Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and a resurrected Jesus Living and victorious. And Peter revels in the fact that by God's grace and the sacrifice and suffering of Jesus, he has this enormous privilege of participating in the peace of God and the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with the Father and the hope of eternal life and companionship with the Savior. And so why does Peter participate in the glory that will be revealed? Because Peter's participation is based on what Jesus has done. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You know, much of the world celebrates this day in a a way that's counterintuitive. Almost 500 years ago, Martin Luther went to a church and he tacked on A wall, 95 Thesis, and and scholars, even unbelieving historians, believe that when Martin Luther pasted those edicts of the 95 Thesis on the the Wittenberg door, it became the renaissance, if you will, of religious liberty in in Western civilization. And so we see in verse 2... The motives for ministry. Look what it says. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Serving as overseers. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. As a matter of fact, the word shepherd includes the idea of feeding. As a matter of fact, in the Old King James, it's even translated that way. It says, feed the flock of God. And that certainly is true, but it's way more than that. The word is "poi maeno." It means the broad, inclusive sense of total care. It was a word that was used to describe Leading and guiding and feeding and guarding against enemies. And the reason why I think that the New Testament gives such emphasis to feeding is because it's an important part of the pastor's job. I might even go so far as to say it's the most important part. You know, it's interesting. I love being a grandpa and my wife loves being a grandma. But when you have babies around you all the time, you'll notice something. What is the call to urgency in every baby's life? Feed me, feed me, feed me. (laughs) Philip Keller writes, it's no accident that God has chosen to call us sheep. He writes, the behavior of sheep and human beings are similar in many ways. Sheep do not just take care of themselves, if some might suppose. They require more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. One pastor summarizes a shepherd looks at Psalm 23 and he writes, For example, God has created most animals with an uncanny instinct to find their way home. But if sheep stray into unfamiliar territory, they become completely disoriented and can't find their way back home. As in the Lord's poignant parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15, verses 3 through 7, sheep need a shepherd to guide them. Sheep need a shepherd to provide for them, to protect them, and sometimes to rescue them from harm. Sheep spend most of their time eating and drinking or watching the bronco game. No, it doesn't didn't say it. he didn't write about that. But if they become lost, they're helpless to find adequate food and water. Left to themselves, sheep will indiscriminately eat both healthful and poisonous plants. They'll overgraze or ruin their own pasture. They need to be led to water that is not impure and stagnant, too hot or too cold, and water that is not moving too rapidly. That's why the psalmist refers to quiet waters in Psalm 23 too. Sheep are in much need of other assistance as well. Because their wool secretes a large volume of oily lanolin that permeates their fleece, Much dirt, grass, wind-blown debris clings to it. Since they have no ability to clean themselves, they remain soiled until the shepherd shears them. Between shearings, that dirty, sticky accumulation must be cut away from under their tails, or they can't eliminate waste, and they become sick, and they even die Because sheep are also naturally passive and virtually defenseless against predators. And when attacked, their only recourse is to flee in panic. They have to be constantly on guard. The shepherd has to be constantly on guard to defend them and rescue them. I think that that's interesting. That's why Peter says, shepherd them shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. By the way, he's moving from spiritual maturity and ministry to the issue of the spiritual motivations of the pastor or the minister or the leader. He says to serve as an overseer is very interesting In the original language, this word appears only here. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, it's a word that's descended from the word episkopos. But it is a word that basically, literally means, it combines two issues. To look upon and then visit and care for. And so the idea as serving as overseers, it it carries with it the idea, I need you to look long and hard into the lives of the individuals that God has brought into your presence for the purpose of providing care. That's what it means. To look and watch And notice, you see the leader's job is to look at a particular person and say, do you need hope? Do you need comfort? Do you need prayer? Do you need encouragement? What is lacking in your life so that by the presence of the lordship of Jesus Christ, by the promises of God, you can become that provision? That's the idea. And he writes... Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. The word translated not by compulsion or not by constraint, again, is one of those interesting words in the original language. It appears only here in the Greek New Testament. It's a word that is emphatic and it means because you must, or by coercion, or compelled by force, or manipulated from necessity. Here is the idea that you're not the pastor, you're not the leader, you're not the servant, because nobody else will do it. I guess I'm going to have to do it. I guess since nobody else will do it, I guess I'll do it. No, that's not the point. Why? Because if coercion or compulsion or manipulation is your motive for ministry, your energy will soon dissipate. Your joy will evaporate. Your ministry will disintegrate. I know. We are to be men and women who lead because we want to, not because we have to. You see, this is why I'm really, really reluctant to beg you to serve in the children's ministry. I'm reluctant to beg you to do anything at any time. Because it's so important to me that the thing that motivates you In your service for the Lord Jesus Christ is your willing heart. And that's why he says that spiritual leaders must be willing. Again, it's another adverb. It means voluntarily. And it's very, very interesting because some translations basically say, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Some some manuscripts add, according to God. Now, this is really only for the person who is a Bible nerd. But papyri number 72, 3rd century Sinaiticus, 4th century documents, 5th century documents, a considerable number of later manuscripts and some early versions say, according to God. Can I say with complete assurance that According to God appears in the original text, I don't know, but the principle surely is there. The true spiritual leader must be willing to both count the cost and see clearly that all that ministry means. That's part of the point. When you enter into leadership, when you enter into the amazing, wonderful, rewarding consequences of being a spiritual man, a spiritual woman who participates in leadership, you need to be able to ask and answer the question, how much is this going to cost me? How long are the hours? If you want to be the pastor of a church and you still like to have weekends off, you need to get a different job. (laughs) If you don't want to bear burdens, if you can't keep secrets... If you're content with heartache and tears as your reward, then maybe you could be a candidate for ministry. And look what Peter writes. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. I find that this is very, very interesting. Notice what Peter says. Peter says the sheep exist for the leader to feed them. He doesn't say that the sheep exist in order to fund the pastor. Now you laugh, but I got to tell you something. We're living in a weird and wicked world that seems to have turned everything on its head. As a matter of fact, the word translated dishonest gain in the Old King James, it's filthy lucre. But almost nobody knows what filthy lucre means. But I think that it, is, it means dishonest gain. In other words, the point that Peter is making is that the pastor, the minister, the leader must not, cannot be motivated by financial profit. The minister's motive is not to make money or even to make a living, but to make a life and a willingness to serve God based on God's call and the love for ministry. I was talking on my radio program about tithing versus giving, and a minister calls me, and he says, what are you saying? If you don't make your people give, then what are you going to do? How are you going to fund the ministry? He even asked me, he said, what would you do if everyone at your church decided to stop giving altogether? I said, then I guess I would close the doors. Just like I opened them. I'd turn off the lights just like I turn them on. My willingness to serve and my readiness to serve and my callingness to serve isn't based on your willingness or unwillingness to give. Just know that if you see the lights off, you'll know why. Hey, why are the lights off? Because guess what? We didn't pay the bill. Why didn't you pay the bill? Because we don't have any money to pay the bill. Why are the carpets dirty? Why aren't there any materials in the children's ministry? My job can't be, it must not be, it will never be for me to beg you for money. The ministry is not a job, it's not a duty, it's not an obligation, it's a sacred charge. To execute. It's a debt to discharge. And what are the motives of ministry? Peter lists two negatives and two positives. Not for a big salary, not to be a man's hireling, not from constraint or compulsion, not because you're forced to do it. The pastor, the leader has to have a willing heart and be ready to face the challenges of spiritual leadership. And the motive for ministry is love for Jesus from a pure heart and faith in Jesus from a redeemed heart and, and hope in Jesus from an expectant heart. <laughs> I was reading a letter. About the perfect pastor. The perfect pastor is young with years of experience. (laughs) If his hair is gray, he's too old. If he has five or six kids, he has too many. If he has no kids, he sets a bad example. If his wife sings in the choir, she's being forward. If she doesn't, she's not supporting her husband's ministry. If the pastor speaks from notes, he's too dry. If he's extemporaneous, not deep. If he spends too much time in his study, he neglects the people. If he visits the people, he neglects his duties of personal devotion, prayer, and study. If he's attentive to the poor, he's playing to the grandstand. If he's wealthy, he's trying to be an aristocrat. If he suggests improvement for the church, he's a dictator. If he makes no suggestion, he's a stale figurehead. If he uses too many illustrations, he neglects. Neglects the Bible. If he doesn't use enough illustrations, he's not clear. If he condemns wrong, he's cranky and he's having a bad day. If he does not, he's a hopeless compromiser. If he preaches the truth, he's offensive. If he doesn't, he's a hypocrite. If he preaches for an hour, he's windy. If he preaches for less than an hour, he's lazy. If he fails to please everyone, he's hurting the unity in the body. If he tries to please everyone, he has no personal convictions. If he preaches giving, he's a money-grubbing carnal Christian. If he doesn't, he's neglecting spiritual growth in his people. If he receives a large salary, he's a mercenary. If he receives a small salary, well, it proves he's not worth much. If he preaches all the time, the people get tired of that same old voice. And if he invites a guest speaker, he's shirking his responsibilities. And what do you do? What do you do? The perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. He condemns sin roundly, but he never hurts anyone's feelings. And he's handsome. <laughs> That's the point. A willing heart. You know, it's, it was interesting to me I, when I was preparing this message, I read an interesting study. Someone paid someone a half a million dollars to try and find out what people wanted from their pastor. They spent $500,000, interviewed some 6,000 people, conducted a bunch of studies, and they said, this is what people are looking for from a pastor. Humility, honesty, integrity, and number four on the list was some gift and calling on their life that made it evident that they were really called by God. Isn't that interesting? Can you imagine if they would have given us the $500,000 and just simply read 1 Peter chapter 5? (laughs) And look at verse 3. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now, in this brief time, Peter has tapped into The minister's will, voluntary service. He's tapped into the minister's mind, eager enthusiasm. And now he taps into the minister's soul, meekness, and humility. Not as being lords, he says. And by the way, the idea of lording it over someone meant to exercise control. Or to exercise authority or to exercise dominion over someone with both the idea and the consequence of making someone feel inferior or subordinate with the Lord as master and the underling as servant. And you'll notice something that many, many pastors claim to be servants. But what happens the moment you begin to treat him or her like a servant? That's really the key test see that parking space senior pastor that's my space see the sign reserved for the pastor that's my seat jesus goes to extraordinary lengths with his disciples to instill in them the attitude of a servant rather than as a lord we are not sovereigns but servants we are not masters but slaves And the pastor exercises influence, not on the basis of authority, but on the basis of example. That's the point that Peter is making. Our sermons are our life, and our lives become our sermon. And the inspiring leader isn't the one with the loudest voice, but the brightest life. I read the story of a little boy who wanted to grow up and be a pastor, He was totally shocked and dismayed when his mother said, you know, if you want to grow up and be a pastor, you're going to have to be good. And the little boy said, always? And the mother said, always. And he said, what if I'm good only some of the time? She said, very good all the time. And the little boy said, okay, I'll become a TV evangelist. You know, it's hard for us to criticize Rome for lording it over people when evangelical Christianity has created a cultural hierarchy that elevates pastors and denigrates disciples. It was never that way in the Bible. Peter would be embarrassed and ashamed if you gave him a great big silk hat and a scarlet cloak and a gold ring. And he would die if you built him a palace and you ordered him to live in it. Peter would be shocked if Jesus suggested that arrogance and greed and lust and imperial power would more often than not mark the occupants of Rome's bishop's seat. Peter would be more than embarrassed and more than disturbed if you told him that one day Christians would make alliances and they would write treaties and they would mobilize armies and that they would wage war and that they would persecute mercilessly those who challenged their authority and power. That was not anything ever that was indicative of the first century, of the leadership, or of the church. Are academic credentials important? Are administrative skills vital? Are clear thinking and persuasive speaking critical? I think all of those things are important. But in the New Testament, it never stresses academic credentials. It never stresses administrative skills. Even clear thinking and persuasive speaking isn't the point. What becomes the point in leaders everywhere is that you are humble and you are honest. And you are a man or a woman who exercises integrity. That's the point. A humble spirit. Since pride is the fatal flaw that plunges the minister and the ministry into an abyss of caricature and carnality. The minister of Jesus must be honest and have an assessment of self and an ever-growing, deepening faith in the lordship of Jesus. Someone wrote, Others in your church will become wealthy. Some will become politically powerful. A few may court fame but not you. Your life each day depends on God's supply of money and energy and maturation. Good shepherds get to the good shepherd each and every time. And that's exactly what Peter does in verse four. Look what it says. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that doesn't fade away. Now you all know who the chief shepherd is. It's Jesus is the Bible, and in the Bible, Jesus is the good shepherd in John 10 who gives his life for the sheep. Jesus is the great shepherd in Hebrews thirteen twenty, who cares for his sheep. Jesus is the chief shepherd in Psalm 24 who's worthy of all glory and of all praise. And two crowns are contrasted in the New Testament. You will receive the crown of glory, the word translated crown is sometimes the word diadema. We get the word diadem from it. It was a royal crown. And then the other one is stephanos, which is the victor's crown, or a crown given as a reward for competition or victory. Here, the crown of glory is stephanos. The expression that does not fade away is one Greek word in the original language, amarantinos. It appears only here. And by the way, it was a word that described in the ancient world a flower. There was a flower in in ancient Greek culture called the amaranth. And it was called that because it never withered. Or when it did wither or it became dry... It revived if it were moistened with water. It was used in the ancient Greek world as a symbol of everlasting life and immortality. Human crowns and worldly glory fade. I doubt if a single person in this room can tell me who the champions were in the 64 Olympics. I'm not talking about 1964. I'm talking about 64 AD. When Peter was writing this. Men and women crave perishable crowns. People want temporary honors, temporary accolades, temporary rewards. So who receives the crown of glory? Do you think it's a kind of cosmic pastor appreciation crown? I don't think so. The crown is reserved for the faithful few who have fulfilled the exhortations given by the Holy Spirit, courtesy of our friend and fellow elder, Peter. As a matter of fact, God knows whether your motives are right or wrong. God knows whether your willingness and eagerness comes from a spirit of humility or freedom or some sense of obligation or duty. God knows whether your goals are right or wrong, whether you're greedy for fame or attention or you need a job. Elders could be paid, but their payment was to provide for basic need, not greed. Elders could be paid, but financial focus was not to be their ministry emphasis. As a matter of fact, in the early church, when they would gather the resources together and they would entrust the resources to the stewardship of the elders, it was for the purpose of maintaining propriety in the community. God knows about motives and goals and methods. God knows whether you're lording over the stewardship that's been entrusted to you. God knows if you're leading by example or by force. There's a permanent crown and there's an everlasting reward. The people who wear this crown will wear it with honor and distinction and it will be a constant reminder throughout all eternity of those who see the crown. Is this a literal crown? Or is this the common glory that servants and saints share because they know and love the Lord Jesus? By the way, we know other passages in the New Testament speak of a crown of endurance and a crown of suffering. We know that it speaks of those who have embraced Jesus Christ who with patience and endurance and courage get up every morning and love him every morning and love him every day. It speaks of a, right, a crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. And James writes of a crown of life given in James chapter 1, verse 12. Whatever the crown is and whatever the glory is, And however it's manifested, it's eternal, unchanging, and never-ending. In Peter's world, the elder was the role model. In Peter's world, the elder fed the flock, led the flock, guided the flock, guarded the flock, and the leader served as a servant, subject to the Savior. The shepherd's motive... Not compulsion, but consent. The shepherd's manner, leadership is never dictatorship. The shepherd's reward, not now, but later. I know you're being inundated with political ads, but if Peter were here, he would say, I'm Peter and I approve this message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that um, we live in a world where for whatever reason that we don't quite understand, some people are under the shocking impression that the pastor's role is to fleece the flock and fund the pastor instead of feed the flock. And Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you will empower these men and women to mature. That they wouldn't be tossed to and fro. That they would not be easily deceived. That, Lord, that they would be men and women who are not subject to simply caving in when pain and sorrow and suffering rears its ugly head. But that these would be men and women who would serve, not by compulsion but by consent, who would lead, not from pride or greed, and who would look for a reward that doesn't always necessarily manifest itself now, but perhaps later. Lord, I pray that you would hide your face from our sin and that you would reveal your face to our hearts so that we could know you and love you and serve you as faithful men and women. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.